Welcome to Every Moment His. This is a podcast where we seek to bring every aspect, every moment of our lives under the gentle authority of Jesus Christ, the King of the universe. We're glad you're here when we pray this conversation is a blessing to you. We're talking about the Reformed denominations, uh, most popularly known as the Presbyterians. Yep. Um, and that's what we're doing. Uh, so we are in a series on, on uh, Christian denominations. Just a little bit of a um, disclaimer before we begin. You know, we're not trying to trash denominations or you know, speak down to people. We're not trying to be overly critical. But um, what we teach from God's word, what we proclaim in God's church is really important. And um, some of these practical differences that we have in our preaching and teaching and the way we live the Christian life, uh, you can kind of see as you talk about them in differences yeah. between denominations. And, you know, I've heard people say, you know, denominations don't matter. We just all need to be one yeah, church. Yeah. Well, in a certain sense, we are because the church is the, the unity of all who confess faith in Jesus Christ, mm -hmm. you know. But when it comes to living the Christian life, we run into some of these like, okay, are we going to baptize the baby or wait till age of 13? And what does it mean? And what does it mean? Baptized, yeah. Yeah. So um, yeah, when we're arguing about denomination, when you're arguing about doctrine, beliefs, mm -hmm. we're really arguing about what does Jesus want us to have? Right. So if you care about Jesus, if you care about what he says, if you care about his heart, his word, uh, then you're going to end up with um, important conversations about doctrine. Yeah. If you don't care so much about that and you have a vague idea of who Jesus is, then you're going to say, well, that's not going to matter. It doesn't matter. Yeah. But and as soon as you get into, well, what did Jesus talk about? Well, and, and the, the, the conversations are friendly too. I mean, we have uh, friends from different denominations, pastor friends, even in this own city. Mm -hmm. and, and we would... I mean, these are conversations we've, we've gladly had and would have. In fact, um, we've, we've spent time with Presbyterian pastors in town, mm -hmm. you know, over coffee or a beer, just kind of talking about like yeah. stuff that matters. And we have a lot of unity. We do. But there are some things that we differ on and those are worth talking about. And uh, we actually enjoy talking about these things. Absolutely. It does sharpen our, our um, gives us some clarity and sharpen our conviction. Um, and understand our position better. Yeah. Um, so in particular, we're talking about churches that are in the PCA and well, the PCUSA. Right. And then there's so a variety of different that. churches yeah. in what we call the Reformed heritage. And okay. so Reformed coming from the Reformation, which we did too. Kind of so stole that little, word from us. Yeah. Confusing. <laughs> Uh, but you have um, different groups, and so churches that would say they are Reformed are typically going to be from more of like a Dutch background, so okay. Dutch Reformed. And then you're going to have, there's actually some German churches that were Reformed uh, that followed the Heidelberg Catechism. And then you have uh, the English-Scottish um, variety of uh, Reformed, which were called Presbyterian. Now so they largely, were called, yeah. there's kind of two different ways of approaching it um, with church polity, meaning how the church is run. And so the Presbyterians are called Presbyterian because the word uh, presbytus uh, um, 
is the Greek word for, for elder, mm-hmm. uh, which basically meant pastor in the mm-hmm. early church. And so the church would be ruled or governed by teaching elders and ruling elders, like a body of, of elders. So that's where you get Presbyterian. That's coming from the Scottish, um, John Knox, I believe, mm-hmm. is, the, yeah. is the guy. And then um, other uh, churches had different polities. Some would have a more congregationalist polity, meaning individual congregations that self-govern, or some even would have like a, a bishop, you know. Um, hmm. So it's... Uh, so there's a even form, find, yeah. Because you'll find, you'll find reformed Christians within, say, the Anglican church who'd be, I'm Anglican, but I am of a reformed theological persuasion. And that doesn't necessarily mean Presbyterian in church polity. No. But it does mean that in general, we're going to trend towards the Calvinist yes. or following John Calvin's teachings. Right, uh, right. And so just a bit of the history here. Reformed Church goes back to two guys in particular, um, uh, Zwingli uh, and John Calvin. And, and I think most people I talk to who are Reformed, I think they more side with John Calvin than Zwingli. They w- I think some would say Zwingli went a little too far. He was a little too radical. Okay. Um, but John Calvin, um, John Calvin was very much influenced by Luther and Augustine who influenced Luther. And so from John Calvin, you get these teachings um, uh, in particular with regard to predestination, God's sovereignty, election, um, things like that. We'll talk about those later. But then you get, um, I would divide up the kind of, um, as I think about the history of the Reformed churches, I would look towards catechisms. So we have Luther's small catechism. Mm-hmm. In Germany, the Reformed catechism was the um, Heidelberg catechism. And I love, I love the first question, you know, what is uh, your one hope in life and death? Mm-hmm. And is that I belong mm-hmm. to Jesus Christ, body and soul. It's really beautiful. Mm-hmm. But, uh, then you have the Westminster catechism. What is the chief end of man? Do you know? Uh, is it to glorify God? And enjoy Him forever. And enjoy Him forever. That's the first catechism question. There we go. Um, and then uh, you have the uh, Synod of Dort, uh, where they were kind of figuring out all these questions about free will and, mm-hmm. and predestination. And so um, you get these different confessions that come out, and boom, you've got a Reformed heritage, which I would say in the United States typically leads to what we would know as Presbyterians. There are Reformed bodies, especially in Michigan. There's a lot of Mm, Reformed mm -hmm. churches. Reformed Church in America, I believe, is the denomination. That's why there's a Dort College. Okay. Because they are all Calvinists. Yeah. Um, But here in Kearney, we're going to probably know the word Presbyterian. Um, so John Calvin, yeah. all the way to the, pre- to the Presbyterians. So, yeah, what do we like? So, I, well, let's just say from the start, and if you listen to our Methodist uh, episode, we talked a little bit more extens- extensively about this, but you're going to find um, liberal Christianity, meaning um, less interested in doctrine and scripture and more interested in kind of the social reform mm-hmm. uh, trend. Yeah. Or accommodating to the culture Christianity. 
it might be a good way to talk about it. Uh, you're going to find that in the Presbyterian world too. Yeah, particularly in the PCUSA. Right. Whereas the PCA, the Presby Presbyterian Church of America, it's either of or in, I don't know. Um, they are they are more like the LCMS. In right. They're confessional. They're holding to the scriptures. The PCUSA would be like the United Methodist. Or like the ELCA. Or like the ELCA. Yeah. So we're going to have a lot more to talk about with the, those in the more biblical church bodies. We're going to have so much more yeah. to discuss. Mm -hmm. Those who are in the, the liberal church bodies, we're just going to say, are we even going to have the same conversation? Are we going right. to be pointing to the scriptures? Are we going to talk, be talking about doctrine at all? Um, and so we want to be as generous as possible, but I just want to point out the distinction because mm -hmm. yeah. in general, when we're going to critique someone's theology, we're going to be critiquing the historic uh, convictions of the more biblical grounded church bodies. So the PCA, we have a lot of affinity for them. We have a lot in common with them, but yet we still have a lot of distinctions that matter right. with our theological convictions. So with that being said. Yeah, and, and so I would say I've got a real soft spot in my heart for the um, Reformed Presbyterian churches because so often they're talking the same language that we are in particular about God's grace. Yep. I mean, they're going to make a big deal out of the sacraments and a big deal out of um, reverence and awe uh, for the glory of God. And um, they're going to really take God's word seriously. And I think that's probably my biggest kudos for them is that I, I, I'm struck by just how how much reverence and, and mm. care they have for God's word. They want to study it carefully. Yeah. They want to say, what is it saying? And so very often in Reformed churches, they're, they're going to preach through entire books of the Bible. Mm -hmm. And so they're mm -hmm. going to have a sermon series on the book of Romans that lasts a decade, <laughs> you know, uh, verse yeah. by verse. Yeah, we did nine months. We did nine months. Decade, yeah. Um, and so, and I would even say a lot of the authors that I've read that have helped me understand the Christian faith in a, in a richer way have been reformed. So John Stott, who would be a Anglican of the reform bent, um, also J.I. Packer, also reformed Anglican, mm -hmm. um, Tim Keller. Yep. James K.A. Smith. Yeah. It's reformed. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing I would, I would say I really have a, a appreciation for as well is like they're not sitting around waiting for people's permission to think very well about the Bible. They're right. after it. They're, they're going to ask it. the hard questions. Yeah, they publish really good books. Mm -hmm. um, they also have a very rich theological history. Mm -hmm. They have a... Um, they have a... Um, a lot to draw on in their tradition. They're generally pretty unapologetic with their conclusions. Yeah. In fact, there's a really good book written called Between Geneva and Wittenberg. Yeah. And it's written um, by a Lutheran and a Presbyterian who are having a dialogue about doctrine. And it's Robert Kolb from Concordia Seminary of St. Louis. Um, and then, ooh, what is the name of the yeah. it's a history professor, also a pastor. 
if I remember his name, I'll tell yeah, you. Yeah, I know. I, I, you made, I, I forgot it too. Yeah, but um, really great book because, and I remember in the introduction to the book, um, the authors say, if there's any denomination that should be talking together about yeah. the scriptures and, and seeking, you know, um, as much clarity and unity as possible, Is it, it would Jensen? be... Uh, Presbyterians and, and the Lutherans. Uh, is his name Jensen? No. Broughton? Uh, Carl Broughton is Car a Lutheran. Oh, darn. We'll talk about him in the ELC. <coughs> All right. You're better at remembering uh, names than I'm I am, John. I'm slipping, though. <laughs> so. oh, well, all right. So uh, we have this appreciation. We have this affinity. We, we're in, we have a lot the same um, seriousness about the Scripture. What are some things that we disagree about? Well, um, so I'm, I'm just gonna I'm gonna go through like just just a, a line item here. Okay. <laughs> we need to make sure we don't spend too much time on these. Yeah, two. right. Um, and there's gonna be I think that with each of these there's going to be a certain level of agreement, but we don't take it to the same logical conclusion. Uh huh. Um, yeah, why don't we just toss some of these back and so, forth? Yeah, and give, so, yeah, give me two minutes. So, here. predestination. Yeah. And predestination means um, that God not only has foreknowledge of who will be saved, but He effectually predestines people and says, You're mine, I've chosen you, so that the assurance of your salvation does not come through, I decided to follow Jesus. Mm -hmm. But as Jesus says in John 15, You didn't choose me, I chose you. Or as Paul says in Ephesians 1, he predestined us from the foundation of the world. Yeah. And so that's a very beautiful doctrine that we affirm in the Lutheran church. But we teach it as a doctrine of comfort. So that, it, like, if you're ever wondering, am I going to make it? <laughs> Chill yeah. out. You're yeah. going to make it. You're predestined. Um, the Reformed, it's interesting because John Calvin doesn't make as much of a deal of predestination as his... Um, later theologians would. But um, Calvin does talk about the, the decree. Uh, there's the decree, um, there's a good decree and there's a bad decree. Mm. Before, the, before the foundation of the world, God decreed who would be saved, who he purposed for salvation, and who he purposed for damnation. And so this teaching would be called double predestination. Okay. Meaning that God does not just predestine some to life, but he also predestines some to death. Yeah, and so we would say we don't agree in double predestination. Or we do not teach that God has predestined some people without any foreknowledge of, of um, mm -hmm. or without them knowing anything good or bad or doing anything good or bad that he said, I've created you so that you would end up in hell. Right. And, and what I think the Calvinists or the Reformed are doing here is they're following logic. Yeah. And it's interesting. You can follow logic on either way because there are some scriptures that make it seem like it depends upon you. You choose. Choose mm -hmm. this day whom mm -hmm. you will serve. Right. It, will it be the Lord? Save yourselves from the sinful generation. Yeah, and so the Arminian position, which is the position of the Methodists, is going to be like, you make the decision, you make the choice. Good choice, bad choice. And people go to eternal life because they made a good choice, and people go to eternal death because they made a bad choice. Calvinists are saying, mm, God's in control of everything. Human beings don't have free will. 
Everything happens by divine necessity. And so the people who are saved, it's entirely the work of God by grace. They were chosen. Um, and then the people who um, are in hell is because God purposed it so. And so um, the logic there is if you're in heaven, it's because God said yes to you. If, it's, if you're in hell, it's because God said no and you had no choice. Now, we as Lutherans are going to hold things in paradox. We're going to say, actually, the scripture seems to point in either direction sometimes, depending upon the context. And we are going to preach the comfort of predestination. And we're going to preach it to people as if all are elect. Mm -hmm. It's for everybody. Mm -hmm. And how God works out everything on his end, that's his deal. Like, we need to leave God alone and yeah. let him be God. But we are not going to teach people that, you know, perhaps you're not elect because this, that, you can spiral downward pretty quickly. Yeah, and so what the Lutheran, and this is actually going to be one of the major um, under, underneath the hood differences is Calvinist theology tends to um, promote reason mm -hmm. even above the scriptures or logic it tends to. I would say they would promote reason beyond scripture. Right. Meaning scripture said something and it didn't say any more. Yeah. But then the reason is going to jump that fence and yeah. move outward. And in particular, that actually in particular, um, yeah. this is a good segue into particular atonement or limited yeah. atonement. Well, before we get there, I just want to flesh out that idea. Okay. So but the Lutheran position is no we're going to let the scripture speak and we're not going to logically go beyond that, even if we maybe want to. So the idea of predestination, if God's predestining some to heaven and it's his control, he's the one flipping the switch. If that's the case, the logical next step is to say, well, then therefore he must also be um, electing some to go to hell or to be damned. And we're gonna stop short there. We're gonna say, no, that's logically, that logically seems like the next step, but the scriptures don't put that forward. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. so we're going to say, no, we know that God elects uh, to heaven, and that's a great comfort for the Christian. Yeah. But we're going to stop short and saying, oh, we know that God is electing some to damnation. Like, no. Right. And, and the reason is it's practical. It's, well, not only are we going to speak the way the scriptures speak, but pastorally, and when it comes to preaching, that line of thinking can mess with your preaching right. and your pastoral care. And so, it, so next we have this teaching called limited or particular atonement. Right. I've been corrected by people. It's not limited atonement. It's particular. It's particular. So you um, want me but, to take that? Um, if you want to, go sure. ahead and yeah, I'll critique like it. Okay, so particular atonement, also known as limited atonement, is the teaching that uh, Jesus only died for the elect. For those so, predestined for life. Those predestined for life, Jesus, his blood was shed only for those people. And I think the, uh, the motivation is to say, if God is going to do something, he's not going to mess it up. Mm -hmm. So if God is electing people, um, he's not going to do it halfway. He's going to do it fully. And so if indeed Jesus died on the cross to save people, if those, the people who are saved, it worked for them. People who are not saved, apparently, did Jesus like mess up or did his blood not? 
atoned was not affected and was not atoned for them. And so therefore, um, Jesus only died for those people who are saved because mm-hmm. that's what was effective. Yeah. And again, we would say they're, they're going beyond, they're using logic and to mm-hmm. kind of dismiss the scriptures. Right. And we have to note that scripture um, speaks in, 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 in both ways. I would say scripture, when it talks about the atonement, it talks both in a particular way and a universal way. And so uh, just like, you know, in the Old Testament, in the Day of Atonement, particular people, the people of Israel, would, you know, lay their hands upon the sacrifice, you know, the sin would be dealt with. Um, and this was not for the Gentiles, right? Mm-hmm. Um, okay. And so in the book of John, for example, Jesus can talk about how he died for his own. Hmm. Or uh, how... Um, Christ came for his sheep. Now, and there's, and I think there is a little bit for people, there's a comfort in the limited particular atonement because it's like, this is for me. Mm-hmm. Jesus did this for me in particular. But I don't think that you have to limit it in able to make it personal and for you. Uh, now, scripture also speaks universally, though. It speaks about Christ died for our sins and not just our sins, but mm-hmm. the sins of the whole world, yeah, it right. says in 1 John. Or uh, God desires for all men to be saved, for God to love the world. And what they're going to say is they're going to say, well, when it says that he died for the sins of the whole world, it means those who are elect but not yet in the church or who have not yet been converted. Or for all people, it means all types of people from all different walks of life, male, female, Jew, Gentile, of all the nations. But it's like, you, I just don't, I don't think we have permission to read it that way because it's not the natural way to read that scripture. Yeah. And, well, also, here, and here's another one. Is it Second Timothy where he says that Jesus Christ is the Savior of all people, mm-hmm. especially for those who believe? Yeah, he's the ransom for all men. Yeah. yeah. And so, um, so we would say, no, the 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 atonement is for everybody. And so we teach what's called universal objective justification. And to break that down a little bit, it means that when Christ died, he died for the whole world, for the sins of all humanity, every last man, woman, child. Yep. So the, yeah, the deed has like, um, well, debt is a pretty useful way of talking about it Mm -hmm. because it's like the debt's been paid. Yeah. If, if your debt's been paid, it's been paid. It's mm-hmm. gone. Uh, Jesus's work on the cross was for every single human past, present, future. The sins of the entire world were laid on him. The yeah. whole from Adam to the end of the world, all of the sins of that human family. Right. And some people by Christ, some people will insist on rejecting that. Yeah, sure. Or, uh, I've heard it said, you know, that you have to climb over the body, the crucified body of Christ to get to hell. Yeah. You know, it's just yeah, you right. have That's... to literally like reject what he did for you, effectively did for you. Um, and so I think that when we, this doctrine of particular limited atonement is not found explicitly in the scriptures, I think it's a line of reasoning that goes beyond the scriptures. And it's a, a necessary reasoning, I think, if you have double predestination. Now, one more thing to say about that, too. You know, let's take the Exodus, for example. You know, there was no particular limited deliverance for the people of Israel, for those who would believe. Because in 1 Corinthians 10, mm. Paul says, mm. 
God brought them out of Egypt and they were all baptized into Moses and they all ate the same spiritual food and drank mm -hmm. the same spiritual drink, but God was not pleased with most of them and their bodies were strewn dead in the wilderness. Yeah. And so we wouldn't say though that like, like I mean, God gave, God gave that redemption to Israel in full, every mm -hmm, last man, mm -hmm. woman, and child. Yep. But not all received it because not all had faith. Right. And so I say it would be the same with the atonement, that this atonement that Jesus really did liberate the entire creation, every last man, woman, and child from the power of sin. Uh, and it, and, but, but some people will reject it. And they, they don't have it because they rejected it. It's not on God, it's on them. Now, one more thing, because I think this is important. This affects preaching and pastoral care. Because... Oh, absolutely, yeah. And this is going to get into other topics, but this is, I think, at the heart and center mm -hmm. of what we're talking about. It really about, is. Is that when I stand up in the pulpit to preach, believing what I believe about the atonement, that it's for everybody, I have the permission to point the finger at every person in the congregation, believer or not believer, right. and say, Christ died for you, yep. for your sins. Believe it. It's yours. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't think I can do that as a Calvinist because it may not be that Christ died for everybody in the congregation that day. Now, there may be some preachers in the Reformed tradition who maybe bypass that logical consistency and say, I'm going to preach it to everybody as if it's theirs and God mm -hmm. will sort it out. Mm -hmm. But um, I, I've read <laughs> some writings and listened to some sermons where I can't confidently tell you that God loves you because you may not be elect. Yeah. Or I cannot confidently tell you that Jesus died for you because you may not be elect. And then let's say you get somebody in your office who's struggling with like, pastor, I'm not sure that I'm saved. Yeah, I keep relapsing into sin or... Yeah, yeah. like in, in the Lutheran tradition, we're going to say, look at your baptism and look at Christ crucified and yeah. don't stop looking at that. Yep. In the Reformed tradition, there can be sometimes a tendency to say, well, let's look at the fruit. Let's mm. look at the sanctification in your life. Let's look at the holiness of your life, either looking inward at your feelings or looking outward at your works and asking, do you have the evidence of one who's converted? Because, yeah, because they can't look to uh, the cross to know because they, they have to try to look to the election, which is invisible. Right, right. This, and like election is a great deal God. if you know you have it. Totally. It's like, man, if you know that you're elect... Praise God, like you yeah. can live with joy and confidence and rest. But a lot of people in the Reformed tradition, having had these conversations with people, they get into this downward spiral of, I mm. just don't know if I'm elect. Maybe because of my struggle with sin, I'm actually not elected for life, but I'm predestined for damnation. And yeah. so the cross becomes only as good as God's willingness to give it to me. Totally. So yeah. in opposition to that, you know, Lutherans are going to say, uh, Jesus died for every single person. Mm -hmm. um, so you can, any single, anyone can look to the cross and know that was for me. By the way, this is uh, to give a little credit to John Wesley mm -hmm. uh, from our former podcast about Methodism. This is, I think, Wesley's rightful critique of um, the Calvinism within his own Anglican tradition. He was, re re he was pushing back on Calvinism and 
If you listen to Wesley's sermons, you can't listen to him. If you read them, he's dead. <laughs> um, if, you, if you read his sermons, you'll note that he is proclaiming, and actually in, in hymns, the hymns that Wesley put together, uh, some of which are in our hymnal, uh, they proclaim a universal object of justification. Mm. They're proclaiming, um, I, th- uh, I can't remember which hymn it is, but it talks about, yeah, Christ died for every single person. Mm. And that the gospel's for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. Good. Okay, uh, next, believers can't fall away. This is sometimes affectionately known as once saved, always saved. Yeah. That once you're saved, you're locked in. If you're truly elect, you can never fall away. So the perseverance of the saints, Yeah. sometimes it's called. So the idea is that if God elected you, he's going to make sure you get to the finish line. Right. And we, and I would <laughs> We're say, cool with that. I know. I'm we like, believe yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. Because what does Luther say in the catechism? Um, that the spirit calls, gathers, enlightens, sanctifies, and keeps. keeps yeah. Meaning he's going to keep you to the end. And if God didn't do that, nobody would make it. But the, the backside or the backspin here is they'll say, um, God's going to keep, if you are elect, if you are elect, God is going to keep you in the church and he won't let you ever fall away. So that if you did fall away or if you do fall away, you are never elect. Well, yeah. So this gets in this really confusing thing where, because I've seen people who are like, you know, they have like a deconversion narrative Mm -hmm. where they're like, I was a Christian. Now I'm not. And then it's like, man, but that person was a really good Christian. Yeah. Like I read their books or like I listened to their sermons and so then you get into this tailspin of like, well, maybe they were never elect. Right. Maybe it was all just a show. It was all just pretend. They were conversion. false brothers. And then you're they like, were, that person yeah. was a better Christian than me. So maybe I'm not elect. You know what <laughs> yeah, I mean? Right. Dang. And so it, it, it gets really weird pretty quickly. Or you'd have to say, maybe that person is elect because they gave pretty good evidence of it. And so maybe God, like the last minute is going to pull He's them gonna, back yeah, in. Yeah. But we as Lutherans, we're going to deal with this in terms of what we call law and gospel that God has two ways of speaking to us. The law, which says no, <laughs> like game over, you know, go to jail. Like it, the law says, here's what you shouldn't do and what you should do. And if you break that, you're condemned. And there's really no compassion in the law. The law yeah. is the law. And if you fight the law, the law will win. Every time. But the gospel is an entirely different message. It is the message of the free, unearned, grace of God given to you in Jesus Christ before you could ever even want it or look for it. It's, and, and I think words like unconditional, I think words like, um, you know, no merit, uh, when we're talking about the gospel, we're also talking about predestination. Mm-hmm. This, that God did it. It's all him. It's not on you at all. Rest. Yeah. But we speak those messages in all their severity and all their sweetness. We speak those messages to different people at different times. And so if somebody came to you and said, oh gosh, pastor, I just don't know if I'm really a Christian. I struggle with this. I struggle with this. And I want to know Jesus and I love him. But we would say, we would speak nothing but the gospel. Yeah. Be at peace. Your sins are forgiven. Christ won't let go of you. But if you got somebody in your congregation who's like, Hey, you know, I'm wondering, um, can I, um, you know, can I commit adultery? Is that okay? Yeah. 
Um, and I think I'm going to. I think I'm going to. Yeah. In fact, I'll probably ask for forgiveness later. And I am saved. And once saved, always yeah, saved. I'm, I'm, I'm good. I know God would, like, God would never say no to me. We would be like, hold up. Yeah. Here's what St. Paul says. He says, take heed lest you fall. Right. right? Or sh- don't shipwreck your faith. Mm-hmm. And we don't believe that the scriptures are, are talking about hypotheticals. Well, hypothetically, you could shipwreck your yeah. faith. Or hypothetically, you could fall away. No, there's a real, like, that's the preaching of the law. It's like, so, yeah. yeah. So our, our teaching would be, um, yes, God does preserve us and, and, sh- and hold on to us. And yet, mysteriously, Christians can reject their faith and fall away. And the scriptures are full of warnings against this. Yeah. Don't fall away. <laughs> uh, persevere if, you know. If indeed you heard the gospel and you know it's sweet, mm-hmm. um, then stay, hold fast. Or even in the parables of Jesus, we see this, that um, the parable of the sower, there's some that spring up and they accept the gospel right away, but then they fall away because their faith is burned up in persecution or their yeah. faith is choked out because of the thorns. But it says they accepted, they believed the gospel for yeah, a did. time. For a time. Yeah. So yeah. we say you can truly be a Christian, truly believe the gospel, uh, and yet reject it and push it out of your life. Right. And I think for anybody who hears that, and that's a word of law, by the way, <laughs> that convicts us of sin. And I think that when the Christian hears that message, what they will do is they will cleave to Christ and and rightly so, I think that the Christian will say, God, it has to depend entirely upon you because if it's left up to me, I'm going to fall away. If you lifted your finger off of me for a minute, God, I'd fall away. And so please persevere me, keep me. Yeah, right. Um, yeah. So next it would be that the sacraments are signs. Now, interestingly enough, in our own Lutheran confessions, uh, Melanchthon, Philip Melanchthon, who wrote the Augsburg Confession, uh, calls the sacraments signs. Yeah. But he doesn't mean just signs, meaning right. something that reminds you of Jesus. Right. Um, and so we as Lutherans would say, as we take the sacrament of baptism, of Holy Communion, that something uh, effectual is going on, that God's working in us his grace. Yeah, like it's, it's not a uh, reminder that we have grace. It is grace itself, right? Yeah. It's not a reminder of the cross and the love of God. It is the it is the work of the cross itself. It's not a picture of Jesus giving you a hug, right? Embracing you. It's Jesus embracing you. Good. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's not uh, yeah. It's it's not just a memory jogging exercise yeah. about the body and blood of Christ, mm-hmm. it is the body and blood of Christ. And, and kudos to the Calvinists because they take the sacraments seriously, mm-hmm. more seriously than most evangelical, mm-hmm. you know, baptist churches who are going to maybe have communion rarely. And they're going to be very clear on this is just a, just s- a symbol. symbol yeah. And cracker and grape juice. And they're going to um, downplay its significance. But a lot of Calvinistic churches, there are some that actually have communion every week. Yeah. yeah so they're going to say it's an outward side in, of an inward grace. Is that the verb? Outward sign of an inward grace. Yeah. So or it's kind of like the, it's a sign and seal of the covenant of grace, which is in your election. Which is true, but it's not just that. Yeah. That we would say it's the real deal. Because you have to look at the sacraments as objective things. 
that do what they say. Yeah. Because then it doesn't depend upon your ability to at the rail as you receive communion to conjure up good feelings for Jesus right, and to look at right. the cross and remember. And it's like, well, okay. Now, obviously the, the sacraments don't benefit us apart from faith. Like they're not, they don't just work by working. You know, mm-hmm. we're like, I could not believe in Christ and take the sacrament and I'm saved. Oops. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. Uh, how yeah. did I end up in heaven? <laughs> well, you took communion once and... Um, Whoops. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, or you got baptized, you know, but it's, no, the, the sacraments are tied to faith. But we're just saying that when the sacraments are given to us, they, they, they do something. Yeah, they actually bear God's grace into yeah. our lives. And they're going to stop short from saying that. Yeah. They're going to be close. They're cl- <laughs> close. They're real close. In fact, in, uh, in their understanding of the Lord's Supper, they would say, we receive the body and blood of Christ, but through the spirit only so that we who are in Christ, we would be kind of almost transported up into the presence of Jesus in heaven to receive through the spirit. spirit. Yeah. And we would just say, well, that's an over explanation of what's happening. Um, actually Jesus does come down according to his word to deliver the grace that he won for us on the cross it's there. Believe it. Well, this it's a is real the, deal. the reason thing too, because yeah. if you're going to follow your reason, you oh, know, sure. the, 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 uh, uh, the temporal finite, like bread and wine cannot contain the infinite, yeah. the presence of Christ. And so, and like, there's this line of reasoning that Christ can't be everywhere at the same time. Cause he's a human body. And we're going to say, Oh, we just don't really care about that. We're just going to say, yeah. Hey, Jesus said, eat my body, drink my blood. We're going to take him at his words. Yeah. Paul says it's a participation in the body and blood of Christ. And, and not only that, but there's um, like the incarnation of God into the human form. It's, that's not logical, you know, that breaks our categories of logic. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so if we're not going to be comfortable with that, yeah. we can't be comfortable with the Lord's Supper as it's presented. So anyway, next we, one would yeah. be, uh, we touched on this a little mm-hmm. bit, but the assurance of salvation. Mm-hmm. And like I said before, you know, Calvinism is a great deal if you know you're elect. Um, and so, but, and, and, you know, I've had conversations with people in this camp where it's been like, oh man, like, I just don't know if I'm elect hmm. because I don't know if the fruit's there, the fruit of good works. And so. Well, so let's I'll tease that out a little bit. If you, so for Lutherans, we're going to counsel people, look to the word of God, look to your baptism, yeah. look to the sacraments. There you can know for sure that God did something on your behalf. Yeah. Calvinists don't have that assurance. They're parked there. They've right. really parked it in the sovereign will of God and in their predestination, their election. But man, you don't have any evidence of that. Or the evidence would be look to, is it working? Is it working in your life? Yeah. And I'm always scared about that when I think like, if you're looking at your kids and you're like, is this kid elect? (laughs) Well, look at their fruits. It's like their fruits are terrible. (laughs) Like this, when my child was two, like I'm pretty sure if he was my size, he would have tried to kill me, you know? Right, right. So like, it's a scary place to look, not only in my children's life. And, but it's also know, ours. Exactly. I mean, I mean, because we have ups and downs or we have like times where we're like, we just totally don't get it. And, yeah. You know, I, um, well, it, I tell you what, with, with children, mm-hmm. this in particular gets, gets really 
messy, I think, with those who are Reformed Baptists. So some people are Baptists, meaning they're only going to baptize, you know, adults or those who profess faith in Christ. Um, and, and it's going to be, um, but they're going to have a Reformed theology about election and predestination and whatnot. And so there's these difficult, like, you know, conundrums of like, gosh, I just don't know if my kids elect mm -hmm. because I don't see the fruit. I don't see love, peace, patience, joy, joy patience, or I might yeah. get hints of it. And then like, we don't even know if we should baptize this kid because we can't baptize somebody unless we know they're elect. Yeah. And so sometimes in the Reformed Baptist churches, people aren't getting baptized until they're 15, 16, 17. Yeah. And, um, and so, um, like, now, now it's interesting. If you read Luther, if you read the Confessions, if you read some of our church dogmatics doctrine books in the Lutheran church, they actually will point out that to look to your fruit is a valid assurance. Mm-hmm. And so, like, if you're a Christian, you have the Spirit. And if you have the Spirit, things are going to start to change. Um, th there is going to be a transformation of the life, except that that's hidden very much under the form of weakness. It's hidden mm -hmm. under a lot of layers of your personality and your upbringing and your, yeah, yeah. you know, all this messy stuff. And, and even Scripture will say, like, you know, what does John the Baptist say? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Yeah. or First John says, you know, we know that we're in, in the truth because we love the brothers. Yeah. Right? And we keep God's commandments. Or Peter, right? Confirm yeah. your election. Yeah. Second yeah. Peter 1, yeah. confirm your election. But I think that those assurances always have to be secondary, yeah. especially when you're in a moment of affliction. Because when you're in a moment of affliction in which Satan is afflicting you and assaulting you. And because the, the biggest thing that, that Satan ever wants to do is question your election and question mm. your justification mm. and question the work God's of Christ in your life. Work yeah. of Christ in your life. Yeah. And when you're in that battle, don't reach for the fruits because he can easily look at the fruit and be like, well, were you genuine? Did yeah. you really believe? Did you really mean it? Some pretty rotten fruit you got there. Yeah, he'll point that out. Yeah. And, so, and he'll but, be right. And he will be you right. Because it's like not, not great. <laughs> but if you look at Christ, there's nothing in the work of Christ that he can, there's nothing in your baptism. Yeah. There's nothing in the sacrament of the altar and the body and blood of Christ that could ever be criticized. Yeah. Right. So kind of, I think we're kind of at an ending point with this to kind of to wrap it up. I think one of, when I was studying this, um, about a year ago now, I guess, um, one of the things that really struck me is the way that they read the Bible is a little distinct or the, the goal for the Bible, what is the Bible doing? So mm. Lutherans are going to say, let's read the Bible and we're going to look at uh, how is this a picture of Christ crucified? Yeah, and rightly so because yeah. Jesus says um, after his resurrection mm -hmm. on the road to Emmaus, he opens up the scriptures and shows them in the pro prophets, yep. Moses and the Psalms, these things are written about me or John 20. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the yeah. Christ. Yeah. So that's, that's going to be the heart of like, as we read the Bible, we expect it to deliver Christ crucified to us. Uh, the Calvinist reading of the Bible is a little bit more like, how does this, um, how does this show us the divine will of God? And how do I glorify God? Yeah. So this is a broader overall question for the mm -hmm. Bible. And it does have some answers in that. 
But if, the, if you're reading the Bible trying to say, how is, what's the chief way that I glorify God? You're going to end up with more of a moralistic mm-hmm. um, Legalistic. playbook. Yeah, and, and that, so, so, so sometimes the, well, we have, um, you know, the law does three things. It curbs, it keeps us from doing dumb stuff. Mm-hmm. It convicts, it, it, uh, it's a mirror yep. and shows us our sin, so we cleave to Christ. And we would say there's a third use of the law um, that it gives us instruction in how mm-hmm. to live the Christian mm-hmm. life in the Spirit's power. But sometimes I think that the Reformed churches will place such an emphasis on the third use of the law that when it comes to family life or work life or society or the Christian life, the main question they're asking with the Bible is, how do I do this in a Christian way? Yeah. And it can get pretty dicey sometimes because then you've got like, you know, and I see this in in Reformed congregations, is that you've got the families who are homeschooling who they're, and homeschooling and homesteading, mm-hmm. like, I mean, they're doing it. That's the sanctified life. Yeah, yeah. And then the people who are like, you know, I've heard people make arguments, like if you're sending your kids to public school or if, you know, both parents are working, you know. Yeah. It just... Then you're not being a Christian. Yeah, yeah. that you're not only, that you're being disobedient. Or you're and, being less than. And I think Lutherans have always focused on this thing called Christian freedom, which means that we seek to love God and love the neighbor, but the, there are particular contexts that differ. Mm-hmm. And, and I think they differ from one person to the next because some people are going to excel at homeschool. Yeah, and some people would make them wilt. Right, yeah. some people who would, yeah. Um, and so Christians have the freedom to sort that out, and no one should bind our consciences. Mm-hmm. Uh, in a in a matter of Christian freedom. Yeah, there are yeah. some things that there's always going to be a hard stop on. Like, yeah. you know, you shouldn't murder people. You shouldn't yeah. steal. But when it comes to the gray areas, which afflict our conscience sometimes, I think sometimes Reformed Christianity will, can tend towards legalism in saying this is the Christian way to do it. And it's like, well... Yeah. yeah. So, so good. So that's, that's a reform tradition. Hopefully that's useful. Gives us something to think about. Again, another uh, invitation. If you are uh, in the throes of um, trying to discern between a Calvinistic point of view and a Lutheran point of view on the scriptures or anything that we've talked about, man, we, we would do this for free, right? We would come and come and talk to us. We will love to yeah. hear you. And also if you're a reform pastor, like, and you want to have coffee sometimes. Yeah. Uh, no, don't. As long as you're not an aggressive, <laughs> reformed pastor, because there is a bit of a joke about cage stage Calvinists. Yeah, <laughs> the, the person who becomes the Calvinist and is like wants to argue with everybody. Just everybody. And uh, but I do just I think in closing, um, there has been a real attraction of um, of Calvinism for young men in particular. Hmm. There's young men who really are looking for really clear answers. Clarity, yeah. Clarity, and they grew up in maybe kind of a evangelical church, mm-hmm. you know, that was yeah. kind of a vanilla. And or, yeah, or a, a mainline liberal yeah. church that didn't really give them anything of substance. Yeah, and so for some people, uh, reform Calvinistic um, becomes kind of like... Um, it becomes kind of like uh, in the ring Christianity. Yeah. Uh, what's the, it's like ultimate fighting or something. Yeah, UFC. Or, it's like yeah, UFC yeah. theology where it's like, yeah. 
it's going to tell you things you don't want to hear, like you don't have a free will or yeah. we're all sinners. Um, yeah. You mad? Yeah. Mad about that, bro. So, yeah, I mean, I think, and I think that's to some degree, it's good. And yeah. to some degree it could be, dam- it could be damaging. damaging. But if you want to listen to a very clear articulation of the difference between the Lutheran position and the Calvinistic, go and find on iTunes music or Spotify, the album by flame. Oh yeah. yeah. Flame has an album called Extranos. Yeah. And it is spectacular. And he'll explain it to a bit. Yeah. We would also, I would also recommend a theologian named Jordan Cooper who came out of the reform tradition and he has a YouTube channel and a podcast and he talks extensively about the differences between the two traditions. He has a cool beard and he has a really nice wardrobe too. There you go. Okay. We're done. All right. Well, thanks for coming along for this one. See you again next time. Thanks for listening to this episode. We hope it was useful for you. If you found this particularly useful, you can share this episode with friends or family. You can also subscribe to our podcast and whatever platform you're using or give us a review that really helps other people find our podcast. This is also a teaching ministry of Holy Cross in Kearney, Nebraska. And so if you do not have a church, we would love to welcome you into our community to build you up and to share the joy of salvation with you and the rest of the members here at Holy Cross. Thank you.